Welcome to Grace on the Go. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go. This episode is a sermon from Sunday, May 3rd, 2020 called Raised by the Risen One, Reinstated, given by Pastor Jim Von Bush. The scripture passage highlighted for today's sermon comes from the book of John, chapter 21, verse 17. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. God's grace, mercy, and peace are yours in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, conflict. It's no stranger to any of us. We're no stranger to conflicts. Conflicts happen as part of life. But I think you also recognize that unresolved conflicts lead to greater and ongoing division. And, uh, and we see that evidence in the world around us, that ongoing conflicts result in great divisions. And Jesus himself was no stranger to conflicts. In his relationships with other people, sometimes the Pharisees, sometimes his disciples, there were conflicts to be had. And one of the things I've learned over the years in my training, my experience, my observations of people, is that conflicts typically get resolved one of five ways. There's kind of five methodological approaches uh, to resolving conflicts. Jesus uses all five. He gives us examples of all five of them. So I'd like to work through them quickly to set up what we're talking about with regards to Peter and how Jesus seeks to resolve that conflict between he and Peter. So the first methodology or approach to resolving conflict would be to quit. Simply quit. Give up, withdraw, whatever words you might want to use. Jesus did this when he was at his hometown, right? He visits his hometown. He speaks there in a synagogue, but nobody will believe him. Even the scriptures tell us that he couldn't work many miracles in his hometown because there was no faith. They said things like, isn't this the carpenter's son? Don't we know him? Didn't he grow up with his brothers and sisters here in town? Who is he? And so Jesus leaves. He goes on to other villages and places where he does work in the lives of people and and cast out demons and heal people and things of that nature. But in that situation, he resolved that conflict at that moment anyway by quitting, by leaving his hometown. The next one would be to coexist. When there's conflict, sometimes we just live with each other and sometimes just exist, but we're not really deep in relationship. It's just coexisting. And Jesus gives us another example here. He gives us plenty of them, actually. But this one is the Pharisees. He's over at somebody's house. Pharisees are present. They're going to eat a meal. And so Jesus reclines at the table to eat the meal. And all of a sudden, the Pharisees are losing their mind because guess what? Jesus didn't wash his hands. Oh, my goodness. Be something that people would lose their mind over today, I think. But anyway, he's ate down without washing his hands. And and so the Pharisees are just in an uproar. And Jesus says this, it's far worse to have a dirty heart than to have dirty hands. And he goes on and talks about the hearts of those around him. And then he says, please pass the matzo ball soup. So he just kind of coexists with them. The next one would be to compromise. Kind of to give a little, to get a little is the idea of compromise. And so here, an example, just one of them, is when Jesus arrives on the shore and there's that demon-possessed guy living in the tombs and, and the townspeople have tried to contain him. They've tried to tie him with ropes and chains, and, but he just breaks free of everything and, and so everybody's afraid of him. But Jesus walks up and he starts having this conversation with the demon, actually demons, says there's a legion of them, And they say, hey, Jesus, if you're going to cast us out of this guy, can we go into the pigs on the hillside? And guess what? 
Jesus says yes. He seems to compromise in that moment. And then the pigs are all of a sudden inhabited by demons, and they go rushing off the cliff into the sea. Then the townspeople show up, and they're afraid of Jesus. And they say, Jesus, we want you to leave. And Jesus gets in the boat and leaves. And so it seems like he resolves some of these conflicts, at least in that moment, with some compromise. So we have quitting, coexisting, compromising, and then this fourth one is conquering. And thank God, Jesus conquers. He conquers sin, death, and the devil so that we can live and so that we are free. And so just as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Well, Jesus, through his death, has conquered death. And so he is conqueror. And so he, he conquers that conflict. But the fifth one, the one we want to focus on this morning, is consensus. True agreement. And that is what Peter and Jesus come to. Jesus works with Peter at this, after this breakfast on that beach that morning. He works with Peter to come to consensus, to agreement, what they can agree on. And it's important to note, and you'll see as we go through it, Jesus doesn't lower the expectations. Jesus doesn't give in. He says, I'm going to give to you, Peter, what you need for agreement with me. That's what Jesus says in the end. Peter, I'm going to give to you what you need to have agreement with him. So Jesus resolved the conflict between he and Peter by coming to this agreement, this consensus. And so what did they agree on? I see that they agreed on three things as they talked on that morning. The first one being that they agree on loving they agree on loving. Pastor Dinger has talked on this passage before beautifully and cogently as he, as he worked through the Greek words for love, as Jesus says to him three times, do you love me, Peter? But there are different words used in the Greek for that word love. And Jesus says, do you love me with the word agape? Do you agape love me, Peter? Well, that would be this kind of divine love. That's what the word agape love is reserved for. A, a divine love, a preference, a choosing, an infinite, uh, um, an unconditional kind of love. And so that is how Jesus says to Peter, do you love me that way, Peter? Do you love me with his divine preference and choosing unconditional and infinite love? Well, Peter has learned a few things over the years, and so he knows he can't answer, well, yes, I agape love you, Jesus. So instead, he responds with phileo. Phileo is a tremendous love. Please understand, it's not like second class here. Phileo love is heartfelt kinship, and it's affectionate friendship, mutual adoration. So Peter is saying to Jesus, I am in a relationship with you of intimate friendship and mutual adoration. But three times the question and answer continues. Jesus saying, do you love me? And Peter saying, I love you. I think it would have been not too long ago that Peter would have boasted and said, yes, I agape love you, Jesus. I will go to the death for you, Jesus. The rest of these people will run away, but I will be here, Jesus. And now Jesus, Peter says to Jesus, I am in a mutual adoration, friendship, kinship relationship with you, Jesus. But I know what I can and cannot do. The key point here is that Jesus expresses his divine love and receives our limited expressions of affection and adoration. You see, agreement is good, and Jesus is going to work with Peter to bring him to this place of this true, heartfelt, deep sense of love. And so agree 
unloving. And when Jesus expects this kind of love, he's expecting Peter to give no more and no less, no less than all he is able to give, all that he is able to offer. Now notice what Jesus does not do. When he works with Peter to bring him to agreement on loving, he does not say to Peter what divided them. He does not bring up how many times Peter denied him. He does not go back through the list and say, Peter, remember all these failures along the way? I've got three years of failures. He didn't do it. And he certainly didn't say, and Peter, you need to promise to me never to do that again. He didn't focus on what divided them. Instead, he focused and gave his attention to what, connect, what, would, what would connect them, what would unite them. And it was agreement on love. You see, Jesus knew that if he and Peter could agree on love, then they could agree on everything else. And Jesus knows this to be true about you as well. If you will agree with him on love, then you will also agree with him on these other things as well. So the first thing they come to consensus on is loving. They agree on loving. Second is they agree on lifing. Agree on lifing. Now, i got to tell you, this past week, when I was sitting in my office by myself, writing the sermon, studying the scriptures, I came up with this word lifing, and I was like so proud of myself. I was like, I just coined a new word. I mean, I've never heard anybody else use the word lifing. Um, But anyway, I found out that there's nothing new under the sun, and the word lifing has been around for a while. But I wasn't sure what it meant. I mean, I knew what I wanted it to mean. I knew uh, what I had in mind when I wanted to use it in this, in this cute outline. Um, but what if somebody else was using it a different way? And we see that in the vernacular as well. I mean, a word that's been used for a while, and then its meaning gets changed, or the context gets changed. So I thought I'd better check. So I went to the Google expert, and, uh, and, the, and I found out that this is what the word lifing means. It means the art of choosing how to live, being intentional. Truly living life. This is great because that's exactly what I wanted this word to mean. So I was like, yes, I'm in, I'm in cahoots with uh, Google. But anyway, I mean, it, it even goes on and says the word lifing seems to indicate a leaving behind of something so that we can really live. Really live. And oftentimes in real relationships. One of the examples that was given was, I'm going to leave behind computer games and engage in real relationships. And so here, Jesus, when he's talking with Peter about agreeing on lifing, he is saying to Peter, let's leave behind some things and let's truly live in real relationships. It's, in essence, living your best life. So Jesus sought agreement with Peter on living his best life. It's still the same idea. He's not lowering expectations. He's not giving in. He's saying, Peter, I'm going to give to you what you need to live your best life. Peter needed to be raised by the risen one, just like you and I need to be raised by the risen one, raised to a new kind of life. I think you'll agree with me that Peter was still burdened. Even now, at this point, the tomb is empty. Peter and John race to the tomb to find it empty, and they go back, and they, it says, and now they believe what Jesus had been telling them. And they saw him twice in the upper room. Peter was there both times. Jesus shows up, doors, windows locked. Jesus comes in, and now they're on the beach, and they're eating fish together. But Peter is still burdened by doubt. 
and by shame. He is still buried under fear and guilt. But the risen one was raising him. Jesus was seeking agreement with Peter on lifing. And he's saying to Peter, can we agree on leaving behind the grave clothes? Right? You heard last week about how Lazarus, Jesus Christ calls him forth. Lazarus come forth and he comes out alive, but he's still in the grave clothes. And Jesus says, set him free. Set him free from all those things, the grave clothes. And Jesus is saying to Peter right here, I'm setting you free from all those things. Shame and guilt, fear and burden. He says, I'm, can we agree on leaving behind the grave clothes and setting your eyes on the work that is ahead of you so that you can live your best life? Because it's based on what Jesus Christ gives. And Jesus says to him every time, do you love me, Peter? Yes, I love you, Jesus. Take care of my sheep. Tend my lambs, feed my sheep. And so Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ in this moment, as he is seeking agreement with us on lifing, not for obedience necessarily or primarily, not for repentance, not for vows, not for conduct, but Jesus Christ is asking us for our heart, a heart knowing that after that, all else will follow. I really appreciated Jonathan's comments on, you know, regarding fear and faith and how the two cannot coexist. I mean, as far as conflict resolution, fear and faith cannot coexist. And yet it's Christ's people. It's his church that need to be the voice of faith. I think you'll agree with me. It won't come from anywhere else. It can't come from anywhere else. It comes from Christ, and it comes from his people. And, and our world is bound in fear, burdened by fear. I heard just yesterday the mayor of New York City says, you know, it's nice weather outside, but nice weather is a threat. Maybe go out for a little while, but not too much. Don't do the things we would normally do on such a beautiful spring day. And to me, that speaks of, it's from a, a position of fear. Don't do those things. That God has given us a beautiful spring day, but we're going to hunker down. It's ironic, don't you think? I think. I think it's ironic that we're being told how to live by people who are afraid. People who are afraid of dying. It's not that we want to die. I'm not saying that. But we need not fear it as God's people. You know, when I used to travel for the University of Nevada, um, I'd fly quite often back and forth, and, and, you know, you experience all kinds of different experiences on the plane and, and weather and turbulence and rough air and all that kind of stuff, and I'd gotten kind of used to it. And so no matter how turbulent it was, if the attendants would bring me my coffee, I was drinking my coffee. So I'm reading my book, I'm drinking my coffee, and it's all up and down and side to side, and, and I'm okay with it, but the guy sitting next to me was terrified. I mean, he's sitting bolt upright, his feet are on the floor, he's clutching both armrests, he's sweating, and he's... And he looks over at me and he says, aren't you afraid? No. He's like, I got coffee. I mean, and I, and I pondered that. And I tried to encourage him and I tried to help him. And I said, you know, we're going to land. I'm confident that we're going to land and be fine. But it would have been really weird, I think, if in that rough air I looked to him and said, you got any advice for me on flying? Can you tell me how to do this thing? I mean, you're terrified. You must know what it means to be, you know, it would have been odd for me to look to him for help 
Instead, he looked to me because I was the one who was confident. And I think that that is what Jesus is offering to us in this agreeing on lifing. We can be the ones who live confidently, certain and sure of hope because our faith is in Jesus Christ, the one who gives us life. And so, it, and, and remind, you know, remember, it's not necessarily that circumstances were so safe for Peter and his disciples. It wasn't because it was safe. It was very unsafe. But Jesus is saying, hey, if we agree on lifing, if you agree that I am the one, the source of your life, then we can ask, he says, we can, we can seek agreement. And ultimately what Jesus is seeking agreement with Peter on is can we agree that eternity is more important than now? Can we agree that a person's soul is more important than their body? And can we agree on loving, lifing, and living? So our third point is agreeing on living. Again, when I was traveling for university, I'd unpack at the hotels, and I had kind of a ritual I'd go through. I'd put my toiletries in the bathroom. I'd start getting out my dress clothes, hanging them up on the hangers, getting the ironing board out, all that kind of stuff. But while I was doing this, I'd quite often turn on the TV and see what was happening. And, well, between the years 2008, 2012, there was this this show that was uh, aired on one of the cable networks called A Thousand Ways to Die. And so here's the one. I'm in the hotel. I'm starting my unpacking. I hit the remote. That show comes up. I'm like, oh, this seems interesting. What's this all about? And I'm watching, and they are showing these scenes of people, many times tragically, passing away. And I just stood there kind of dumbfounded looking at the TV. I was like, this can't be real. This has got to be just some kind of a hoax or something like that. And, or maybe it's like, you know, funniest home videos on steroids. I just, you know, I was astounded. And, but as I keep watching, so I've got the remote in one hand and my hanger in the other. And I'm, I'm watching. I was like, I can't watch this. I mean, they're, they are glorifying. They're laughing at people passing away. So I nixed that. But the reason I bring it up now is because... I just want to emphasize, I mean, they were, they were treating death and dying like it was just so flippant. Death and dying is somber. It's real. And so when we talk about this, when we talk about agreeing on living, again, please understand, I'm not saying that as believers we look forward to dying, but we certainly aren't afraid of it. And what we have here is a recognition and understanding that I really have little control over the cause of my death. And I... Th- think you'll agree that you have very little control. If, you're, if we're humble about it, you have very little control over the cause of your own death. And you have little control over when we die. Jesus, in fact, says in the Sermon on the Mount, worrying will not add a single hour to your life. Research shows us that it will shorten your life, but we cannot add to it. So we have little control over our cause. We have little control over when. And we have little control over how, the manner necessarily, of how we'll die. But this is what Jesus says to Peter. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Your death as a believer in Jesus Christ will bring glory to God. Again, not that we look forward to that day, but we look forward to it in a sense that we have a greater hope. Jesus has both your life and death in his hands. And both your life and death are intended to bring glory to God, one who has died for you and saved you from your sins. And then he says, follow me. Jesus said again, one of the first phrases he said to Peter was, follow me. 
Now he says it three years later, follow me. Jesus is the same. I think the statement is the same, but Peter is very different. He seems to be a little bit more humble than he was three years ago. And in this moment, I believe that he and Jesus have come to agreement on loving, lifing, and living. And so Jesus says to him, keep on following me. Just keep on following me. Because your life and your death are in God's hands and will bring glory to him. So that's my question for us this morning, is can we agree that your life is in God's hands? I'd like to close with this from uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, are familiar with the story C.S. Lewis wrote. It's about four children living in London during the time of the war, and, uh, and so they get sent off to a professor's house. Well, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy end up finding their way into Narnia, a magical land where Aslan, the lion, is the creator and eventually the savior of the people in that land. And, uh, but Edmund, one of the four, he is a traitor. And he sneaks off on his own and he creates an alliance with the witch and, and things go south. I mean, not only is it a traitor towards his own brother and sisters, but to Aslan. Well, Aslan saves Edmund, as you know how the story goes, and brings him back to the camp with everybody else and has a meeting with him and And we know that in that meeting, what Aslan does is he reinstates Edmund. He forgives him. He gives him renewal and reinstatement. In fact, he says to his brothers and sisters, okay, whatever was in the past is done. We're not going to bring it up again. That's what Aslan says. But now the witch has come into camp. And the witch says to Aslan, you have a traitor there, says the witch. And, of course, everyone present knew that she meant Edmund. But listen to this. But Edmund had got past thinking about himself after all he'd been through and after the talk he'd had that morning with Aslan. So while the witch is making these accusations, Edmund just went on looking at Aslan. And it didn't seem to matter what the witch said. Isn't that great? It didn't seem to matter what the witch said because his eyes were fixed. May our eyes be fixed on Jesus as he seeks agreement with each one of us on loving, lifing, and living, and our living by faith in the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Father in heaven, we thank you so very much for gathering us together as your people, gathering us together in your spirit, so that while we might be separated geographically, we are in one, we are one with you and unified with you. So, Father, may we hear these words from you as love and grace and hope that you would give us assurances and confidence that come only from your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have any questions or comments about this sermon, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org and make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.